Welcome to another episode of UCU Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the lecturers uh, at UCU. I teach economics. I'm also one of the tutors. And I'm here today with one of my colleagues, Hugo de Boer. Hugo, could you maybe shortly introduce yourself? Uh, yes, certainly. So my, my name is Hugo de Boer. Um, I am the fellow of the Earth and Environment track at UCU. Um, because of that, I'm teaching uh, several courses within the Earth and Environment track. Uh, and apart from my work at UCU, I'm also a teacher and researcher at the Copernicus Institute for Sustainable Development. That is a, a research and teaching institute, a part of Utrecht University. And there I'm teaching in the, in the Master of Sustainable Development. And um, yeah, my research that's focused on um, yeah, several aspects of how plants, vegetation interact with, um, with the climate system. Okay. And I understand that you started at a very young age, right? You were like a youth lab worker at the university as well? Oh, yeah, that is, that is true. So that is um, work I did as a, as a student, as my student job. Mm -hmm. And I did, I did some work at the university museum. And I'm not sure if you ever visited the U university museum, but there's a, a very nice uh, part of the museum that's specifically focused on, uh, on where children can do experiments. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, my job was to supervise these, uh, these children, to make sure that, um, yeah, that they get some explanation with the experiments that they can do, to explain things and to just uh, make sure that everything goes Okay. as well so yeah that was a very nice nice job to do besides studying and also gave already some uh, some insight in uh, academia yeah and what was like your favorite experiment to do with the kids is there anything that people could try at home for instance um so one of the let's say the the things that catches the eye if you're there and i haven't been there for for a few years but i imagine it's still there is that there's this chair that is full of um of nails, so it's like a, okay. uh, a, a nail bed that the fakir would uh, would sleep on, but then it's a chair and not a not a bed. So and and it's you can just sit on it and it doesn't hurt at all. But that's the whole idea of a, of a nail bed or a nail chair, because there's so many nails, the the weight of your body is being uh, distributed over the different nails, so it doesn't hurt as much. Yeah, but yeah. it's also very very eye catching, and if you don't think about it, it might seem yeah. very. So that's for kids. That is always very nice to sit on that. Uh, of course, it's not so scientifically uh, interesting, but it's just a very, very nice thing to do. Um, yeah, there's also then one very nice experiment where, where where kids can play with different colors of light, and instead of mixing the colors through paint, they can mix the colors of light in a in a dark room, and um, that is a very nice uh, nice experiment because kids are usually um, they're familiar with mixing colors of paint and mm -hmm. they have certain expectations of what certain colors would look like. But if you mix light, of course, it's an additive type of, of mixing. And yeah. you get a different result if you mix colors of light versus colors of uh, paint. Oh, and okay. That's fascinating. So if you mix yellow and green, you don't get I mean, yellow and blue, you don't get green. Yeah, so I cannot remember exactly which colors you mix to, to get what color, but if you mix num uh, colors of paint, you're going to change um, the reflection of the, of the yeah. light. So you're basically reducing the, the amount of light that is uh, reflected back to your eyes. Whereas if you mix colors of light, uh, you add uh, the different colors. Yeah. Then I'm just going to close the door here for a moment because sure, I think no the problem. voice outside is maybe a bit too uh, hard. 
we're in a little bit of a heat wave here right now. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to reduce the temperature in my house. Not really succeeding so far, but uh, let's see how it works out. Because um, you studied environmental sciences yourself at Utrecht University as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Why environmental sciences? Well, actually, I started out studying physics. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, my first year of university was physics um, with the idea to go into meteorology and climatology. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it very much, but uh, for some reason, I just struggled with the amount of um, math, uh, the amount of yeah, really in-depth uh, theoretical uh, assignments we had to do. Yeah. And I just couldn't get through the, through the first year of physics. I passed several courses, but it was not, um, not for me. So after this first year in physics, I, I decided I needed to have something that was still um, yeah, a beta type of study, still mm -hmm. related to climate and um, yeah, trying to understand nature but without a very deep focus on, um, on mathematics, on, on modeling the specific processes in the, de the detail that is being done in, in physics. Yeah. So that's why I made the step to environmental sciences. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I fared much better there. So I felt, <laughs> I felt right at home uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, it was good. And, and what about environmental sciences? Is it that appeals to you? That's a good match for you. Well, what, what I think is, is nice about environmental sciences is that it is quite a broad topic. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it, it takes into account basically everything that connects um, human processes, the human influence on, on the environment, and then the response of the environment uh, on the human influence, but also uh, the response back. So how do humans then, then respond to environment also? Now, for example, what's going on at the moment is that over the last hundred years, people have been changing the climate. Now, currently, the climate is changing. We actually see that in the data. Yeah. And people become slowly uh, sort of convinced that we are indeed having an influence on the climate. And that, again, has this uh, effect back on human society, where you actually see a gradual change. Yeah. And this whole process, this system thinking type of process, where one component has influence on another component, mm -hmm. That other component then has an influence back on the on the first component. That is what I think is very interesting, and that is very much embedded in in the, the teaching and the, the research uh, within the environmental sciences. And I, I really like that way of thinking because you sort of become part of a of a bigger system, and mm -hmm. you try to understand the behavior of the system as a whole rather than just focus on one component of the system. Yeah. And could you give an example of that where like there's this interaction between human beings and nature? Well, I mean, the, 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 the very yeah, clearest example is what you see currently going on in the climate change uh, debate. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I think is so interesting is that you see like, almost globally, you see the youth currently uh, starting protests um, uh, to, to protect our, um, yeah, our climate system, right? And that is not that is fully like in 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 fundamentally driven by that they're actually convinced by the data, yeah. and the data is in is, is fundamentally driven by what the climate system is doing. Yeah. So so you you see these protests popping up, and you can see oh there's a protest as a sort of an incident occurring somewhere, and you can see another protest uh, as an incident occurring.
suffering somewhere else. But if you think of the, the climate human society system as a, as a larger thing, then you could also see it as a sort of indicator for, for change and an indicator for a system uh, response to, to uh, perturbation. So I, I, I really like this, uh, this type of uh, yeah, thinking and how to interpret what is going on in the yeah. society. So, of course, in your opinion, obviously, um, global warming and climate change, it's something that's spoken about a lot in the media, uh, yeah. also between people themselves. What's the biggest misconception that you usually see there? Oh, well, I, it, I find it a bit difficult to talk about misconceptions because scientists don't really fully understand climate change either, right? So, so there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, there. But maybe one of the things that, that, that people sort of struggle with to, to get is that um, sort of the, the idea, let's say, the, the Paris Agreement that we should stay below the two degree warming um, yeah. and try for the one and a half degree warming. So this, is, this doesn't sound like much, right? One and a half degree mm -hmm. or two degrees. Yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, it's like today it's already 10 degrees warmer than it was last week. So what are we talking about? One and a half, come on. But the point is that, that that's a global number. So that can mean that locally there's very big changes that, that are much, much larger than that and can have a really big impact. Yeah. Um, also, it takes into account a, a whole range of variable temperatures, like from nighttime to daytime, from winter mm -hmm. to summertime. So if you talk about small changes in global average temperature rises, it can actually have a very big impact uh, yeah. on certain locations. And sort of making this translation from, from such a small number to, to what actually would happen in certain locations, I think that yeah, that, that connection is, is not really clear enough with everyone, especially yeah. with the people that think, ah, yeah, global warming, it cannot be that bad. Well, it can actually yeah. be very bad in certain locations. Yeah, because if you... Um because you mentioned it's different in different parts of the world. Could you give an example of a part of the world that's being hit a lot harder than other parts? Well, I mean, a very common example is what we call the, the polar amplification. So there's a, um, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, Arctic region, Yeah. There's the warming goes much faster than, than the global average. And even in the Netherlands, we, we're slightly part of that. But the further north you go, the bigger the amplification becomes. So their expected temperature rise are in the range of eight, uh, eight degrees Celsius. So that is, that is really a big, um, yeah. a big change compared to this global average number. And, and what is the, the reasoning? What is the reason behind that? That it goes faster there than other parts of the world? Well, the, the basic mechanism is because the, um, the Earth basically loses its, its warmth, its, its energy mm -hmm. um, at the locations where there's the least amount of warming going on. So the warming occurs near the equator where the sun hits yeah. and um, the energy is then dissipated through the poles mostly. Yeah. Um, so that is where, where the blanket has the biggest effect, right? If you're cold, you wear a blanket. It's, yeah. you know, it, it has the most effect. So that is the basic mechanism there. Okay. I'm not 100% sure I fully understand that because I have very little background in it. Because um, the energy, I mean, it, of course, indeed, it, in the warmest parts of the world, that's where it comes in. And then it goes out at the poles, you say, right? Yeah, as the, the sun is not having such a an heating influence on the, on the yeah. poles. 
Um, so this is where the, the heat of the planet is, uh, is transported to. Yeah. Normally it would, um, would radiate back into space. Well, it basically radiates back into space everywhere, um, mm -hmm. but it warms the, the Earth um, surface most uh, in, near the poles if you, if you add an additional blanket uh, in the yeah. atmosphere. The effect there is a lot larger because it is so cold there to begin with. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because um, right now you, uh, you've got a, a veiny research going on that is called, and compliments for the title, Rising CO2, No Sweat. Um, what's that about exactly? Yeah, so actually this research just, uh, just finished. Okay. The, okay. The, basic, the basic idea of that, uh, of that project was to, to focus on uh, the influence of rising CO2 levels uh, mm -hmm. on uh, plant functioning. And it's, it's been known for quite a while that if you, if you give plants uh, a higher amount of CO2, their photosynthesis rates would increase. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, because basically plants, they, they take up CO2 for, for their photosynthesis. Yeah. And this, yeah. this reaction goes faster if, if there's a higher amount of CO2 available. Um, so this has been known for a long time, but there's still several things unknown. And one of the things is that whether or not they would actually grow faster mm -hmm. because extra CO2 and extra photosynthesis doesn't always translate into faster growth. And the second part, and that inspired uh, the title of the project, is that plants also start to transpire less water. So okay. basically the, um, the things that plant, the, the basic thing that plants do, do is, is take up CO2 for photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, then they need to have leaves that are open to this gas. Yeah. Because otherwise they cannot take it up. Um, but the, the consequence of that is that it's also open to water vapor. And because plants are, are wet in the inside, because they need water for their metabolism, uh, this water is going to evaporate. Yeah. And this, this evaporation of water and also the uptake of carbon that occurs through these, these tiny pores in the leaf, these are called stomata. And basically what a plant is doing the whole day, it's trading CO2 for water. So for in order for it to take up uh, a molecule of CO2, it will have to leave, uh, have to uh, evaporate uh, a certain amount of, of water. Yeah. This, this trade-off is, um, is part of the economy of plants. So what they, what they like is taking up carbon and what they don't like is uh, evaporating water if they don't have to. Yeah. And um, once you start increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. this uh, trade between CO2 and water basically shifts. So yeah. it becomes easier for the plants to take up CO2. Yeah. And basically their response and their economic uh, thinking mm -hmm. is that then they can uh, transpire a little bit less water yeah. and still yeah. take up enough carbon. Yeah. And this, this response is actually quite interesting in the climate system because if CO2 in the atmosphere goes up and plants at a global scale actually choose to transpire less water, Mm -hmm. This is going to have an effect on how much water is being evaporated globally. And this then will have an effect on uh, many of the processes in the hydrological cycle. Yeah. Cloud formation, how much water vapor is available um, and all these, um, these feedbacks. So that is basically the, the part of my research that I was interested in. Yeah. And we did experiments with plants in a greenhouse, gave them different CO2 levels, measurements, and seeing uh, how they adapted their stomata. Yeah. And uh, that kind of things. Okay. And it is indeed, again, that system thinking as well. It's about this little part of the process. 
Yeah, that's what that's what I really like to think about. Okay, we have a very basic fundamental process. We know from biology how plants respond to uh, to changes in CO two, but we don't have an understanding of this, the consequence of this this let's say small scale behavior on a on 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 a, a larger scale system. And yeah. that, that that is what I really like. Cool. So and I imagine you work together with people from other fields as well in that research. Is it purely environmental science research or also from other departments? No, so I think the, the, the foundations of the, pro, uh, of the project are actually in paleoecology. So paleoecology is, that. uh, is, is a, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a field where people study the, the remains of plants okay. in, um, in sediments. And that is also part of the of the research I did for my for my PhD. And the nice thing there is that you can actually look at um, adaptations of plants over longer timescales. So it's possible to find fossil remains of plants that go millions of years back. It's mm -hmm. also possible to find what we call subfossil plant remains. So they're they're bits of plants that stuck in the sediment, yeah. but they're yeah. not being fossilized as as rock. They're just uh, yeah, yeah. plant yeah. material that hasn't been decomposed yet. And those type of sediments can also go back several hundred years and um, they allow you to find uh, the, the leaves that have grown on a certain tree maybe 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Yeah. And um, so in that field, there's a, a strong tradition of studying leaves and studying the properties of leaves, not so much focusing on CO2, but more focusing on, on climate change with the idea to actually reconstruct uh, changes in, uh, in seasonal climate. Yeah. For example, you can find uh, leaves and the certain properties of those leaves will reflect, for example, if it was a dry year or a wet year. Yeah. And um, these techniques have also evolved into reconstructing CO2 levels. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're not so variable from, from one year to the next. But if you have a record of 100 or 150 years, maybe starting in 1850, um, before the, the big increase in atmospheric CO2 levels, you can basically trace the leaf properties over the, over the last one and a half century. Yeah. And what we found was that actually plants over this time period, they uh, reduce the numbers of stomata they have on their leaves. So this comes back to the point I was making earlier about this yeah. trade-off between CO2 and water. Um, and so from one year to the next, if the CO2 goes up a little bit, then they actually change how many stomata they have on their leaves. Yeah. And uh, therefore they, they transpire less water. Yeah. This is, let's say, the foundation of this, uh, of this research is, is rooted in the, um, in the paleoecology. Yeah. And, and now we're using the same techniques also to understand what will happen to plants in the future. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, really nice. I never thought about that, but of course you can use fossils and everything to get knowledge of, of the past and how they worked and how they've changed, yeah. obviously. Cool. Um, well, next to a researcher, you're also a teacher, of course, yeah. uh, and you teach in very different groups of students because you teach in a master program with students who have made a conscious decision to really specialize in that. Yeah. Of course, when you're teaching at UCU, you're teaching students who may also just take one class and then don't continue in it. How did this, does that differ for you as a teacher? Do you have a different approach to the class then? Ooh, um, 
to be honest, not so much. I mean, I, I, what I always try is I try to be enthusiastic when I'm teaching a group. Um, I'm sure you succeed at that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I mean, it's not an act. Uh, you just have to, yeah. I mean, the things that I'm teaching, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply connected to that. And, yeah. and as a consequence, I'm, I'm being enthusiastic. And exactly. Yeah, I didn't mean to be sarcastic. It may have sounded like that, but I didn't mean that. I can see the enthusiasm when you're talking about your subject. So I'm sure that that's the case in the class as well. Yeah. I, of course, the students in, in our master's program, that they're a bit older than the students that yeah. are at UCU. So, so maybe they're a little bit more mature. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, I find the bachelor students at UCU also quite mature. And I think that's because they have made this conscious decision to, to actually apply to UCU um, and to go through the whole uh, program to actually uh, start and be uh, administered to the, to the UCU. So... I think it's a slightly different crowd. And actually, I find, let's say, the way I interact with the students in our master's program and the students at UCU quite comparable. So it's, uh, yeah. yeah, I have roughly the same approach. So I'm not uh, yeah. not seeing yeah. so much of a difference. Of course, the, the, the group of students is different in the sense that UCU has like maximum 28 students in the class. And in our, in our master's program, we have... Uh, yeah, typically 120, 130 students in, in a classroom. But, yeah, actually, even for that, I, I, I just try to interact with the students. And, of course, if you have a bigger group, um, a smaller fraction of the students would be able to interact with you actively. Yeah. Um, but, but still, it's, it's, it's even for the students that don't interact, it's nice that they, they're part of a discussion if they want to contribute. Yeah. And of course, more vocal students and less vocal students in any group. Yeah. Um, so I, I even in the bigger groups, I try to have this, uh, these debates and one-on-one -on -one conversations. Yeah. yeah. And how well, do yeah. you have a favorite topic to teach? Um, well, it's, it's maybe, it maybe sounds a bit weird. But actually, I very like, very much like teaching uh, statistics. Okay. And it's it's not the statistics like to explain how how a t-test works. I mean, that's not the type of statistics that I'm I'm very much interested in. And it's also not something I'm very good at because I'm not a statist statistician. Mm -hmm. But what I do think is very important and some something that is. Um, well, could could be developed better in, in, in our students, regardless of it's at UCU or in a, in a master's program, is that students understand actually what is data. Yes. How variable data can be. Yeah. And that we need statistics in order to sort of separate differences from variability in the data. And sort of understanding these consequences of uh, variability in data versus, let's say, underlying responses, or what is the difference between an, an average number or um, the, the distribution of the data, and that, that you can have the same average with different distributions of data, so that you need a standard deviation in order to interpret what is going on with the data as a, as a whole. Yeah. With a standard deviation, you don't know what is going on, but at least you have some feeling for the distribution of the data. Yeah. Sort of seeing that you actually need statistics in order to make sense of these kind of 
yeah yeah chaotic uh, patterns in in the data yeah that, that is what i very much like for because for me very often students sort of have this disconnect between let's say the real world yeah. between yeah. data and then the statistics and and I, I really like to sort of connect these things when i when i when i'm teaching uh, my statistics <clears throat> when i when i'm teaching my statistics courses yeah and, and a good example there is um, the lab course I'm teaching, I was teaching last week and I'm teaching this week. It's just finished and the students are currently writing up their, their reports. Yeah. So the, the idea of that course is that the students go into the field and conduct the field uh, research. They take their own measurements. So yeah. beforehand they, they think of a research question and then they go into the field to take measurements and actually answer the research question by collecting the data. Yeah. Um, their own measurements. And then putting them in a in a spreadsheet, and then doing the statistics yeah. on on that data. So they basically make this full circle yeah. of a research question, collecting data, analyzing the data, and then answering the research question. So by doing that, I hope that the students sort of make this link between the real world, then your data, so your sample, and then the statistics and the interpretation of the statistics, so that the statistics becomes more part of, of yeah. let's say, the whole chain of, of processes and the workflow of science yeah. rather yeah. than just a single course that you have to work through yeah. and then it's done, right? So yeah. and actually this, this thinking connects so much with trying to understand <clears throat> the world around us. Yes. And I also feel that this connection is very much missing in many students. So therefore, I really like to, to yeah. teach that. No, that's a very good example. It's because I do see the same thing that for some reason students see statistics as separate of other research that they're reading. Whereas ultimately statistics is just a tool that you're using to get insights into what's going on in the world and how do I interpret these data. Right. That link is indeed often missing. I see that in economics as well. Yeah. But indeed, if you have to connect collect the data yourself first, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, because then then you you can actually think back about when you were collecting the data, yeah. and and you know that the reality is of course much more chaotic than um, than a series of numbers in a spreadsheet. Yes. And you're not yeah. trying to interpret the numbers in the spreadsheet. You're trying to interpret what happened in nature, right? Exactly. Or yeah. wherever the field your research you're doing. But in our case, we're trying to interpret nature. But so that that connection, if you see that with your own eyes by collecting the own data, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a worthwhile experience. Yes, for sure, absolutely. Okay, um, let me see. What do you find the hardest to explain in class? What is the, a topic that that students find it hard to wrap their head around? Ah. <gasps> I don't know. Maybe I'm not teaching very difficult subjects, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure many students would back to differ. <laughs> hmm. I find that an extremely difficult question to answer. 
because there's so many different students, right? I mean, yes. of course, the, the, the common example that, that could, be, could be made, but I find, I, I don't think that is the, the best example to give. But, um, I mean, there's always students that struggle with math. And I would say I'm one of them because I studied one year, I studied one year physics. And yeah, after yeah. that year, I thought, okay, this is not what, what I want to do. I mean, I could understand most of the concepts that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do all the, all, all, yeah, all the mathematics that was needed to actually do the do the, the detailed modeling and do the, the process-based descriptions of what was yeah. going on, and uh, maybe that was because of uh, I, I lacked uh, skill, math mm -hmm. skill that you can understand it, but you can do the, the mathematical language by yeah. basically. But I see that very often in students as well that that if they have to write certain equations that they just get stuck while they actually do, do understand yeah. what is going on. They just struggle with, with the, the algebra. Yeah. And yeah, may, maybe that, that could actually be traced back to, to the, the level of math they, they had at high school or how much time they invested in, in actually learning the algebra. So yeah. that, that, is, that is sometimes I struggle with because I'm, I'm not so good at that myself. I'm yeah. not a mathematics teacher. And uh, therefore, I struggle maybe to explain these uh, these parts of uh, teaching. Well, it's also because what I see as a tutor is that very often the subjects that students end up studying, um, a lot of people think it's about the topic. So if you're interested in humans and you study psychology, basically that level. But I find that a lot of disciplines study the same topics, but they just come at it from a different angle. Right. Um, and then often the topic that students end up specializing in or focusing on is the one where there is some kind of match between their natural way of thinking and the way that the subject reasons. Right. And that's also what you, what you just said indeed with like, they get it, but they don't get the math, even though the math says the same thing is that there is in some way, it's just not their way of thinking the math. Right. Um, and yeah, and I just often find it that it's so much more about does this methodology make sense to me? Yeah. Does that follow the way that I argue as well? And then there's always sort of the chicken or the egg story. What comes first, your way of thinking or your education? Right. Um, but yeah, no, I do recognize that as well because in economics, I obviously have the same problem. There's a lot of math in there um, yeah. because there's such a big mix in class because I have people who do physics and math. I have people who do political science and law. I have people who do psychology and cognitive neuroscience. How do you keep everyone on board? And how do you do that in class while keeping everyone interested? That, that can be really, really tricky. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Um, you've obviously chosen for a life in academia. Um, uh, apparently, yes. Apparently. <laughs> that sounds as if it wasn't a conscious decision. Well, I mean, yes, yes, I know. So after i did my phd there's this moment that you decide okay shall i do a postdoc or not yeah <clears throat> and if you, if you don't do a postdoc then probably you're saying goodbye to academia because yeah. then you start working in business or uh, government or whatever yeah um and i mean i'm aware of the workload of academia i'm aware of the let's say the the lesser pay in academia versus uh, in business and I'm, yeah. I'm aware of all the all the downsides of, of academia we, we 
have. Um, so there were many good reasons for me to not stay in academia. Yeah. But I also very much love academia. I, I, I love teaching. I love doing research and I love doing all these things together. And uh, yeah, so, so I thought, okay, if, if I manage to get a postdoc funded, then bah, why not continue? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I got a postdoc funded. So I thought, okay, then I went to Australia for a bit, yeah. did some research there and it was great fun. And it was, it was very nice to go there. Uh, I learned a lot and it was a very nice climate as well. And um, so I, I had a, a very good time. And then that postdoc ended and I was looking for something else. So again, I thought, okay, what, what shall I do? Uh, okay, if I can find another postdoc, then uh, I'll go there. And yeah. if not, okay, I'll look for something else. And I was lucky enough to, to get another project funded yeah. um, and, and then do that. That was the, the Stomata uh, No Sweat pro uh, project. Yeah. And that lasted... Uh, actually, it's a three-year pro project, but um, I was working not full-time. I was working four days a week, and I also did some teaching on the side so I could stretch it over four years. Yeah. Um, I mean, four years is a long time. So so after your PhD, you do one-year postdoc and another four-year postdoc. Yeah. You're already five years after your PhD. Yeah. And then you're almost at the age that you're too old to, to go out of academia. Right? Yeah. And then... Um, so that was actually for me the point that I thought, okay, yeah, I've been doing five years of postdocs. What what should I do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then uh, then I, again I made this 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 sort of yeah point for myself. Okay, if I can find a, a position where mm -hmm. I can just teach and, and do research, then I'll, yeah. I'll stay in academia. If I cannot, then then uh, then I'm out. Yeah. And then, then I was lucky enough to be hired at the Copernicus Institute as a as an assistant professor. Yeah. So, so, I mean, these were not like decisions in the way that I have to stay in academia, mm -hmm. but it is something that I enjoy very much. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, apparently I'm, I'm, I'm relatively okay at it. I, I'm, I'm not struggling <laughs> that much yeah. as sometimes I see other people do. So yeah, it, it, it sort of evolved from there. And yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm still quite happy being in academia, teaching yeah. at UCU, teaching in the Copernicus and doing, doing research. Yeah, and that's also an important thing to realize. And I think especially for our students who are often at a stage where they have to make decisions about the next step, is that it's really just that you make a decision about the next step. It's not about the rest of your life. Because um, you oh. will be reconsidering every few years or so and there'll be opportunities to change every few years or so i suppose so yeah so you're not necessarily stuck in 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 one direction no um but you did make a choice of course initially to do a phd right yeah and and what was the reasoning then behind that choice um well actually it was connected to my master's thesis and mm -hmm. um yeah, I, I very much enjoyed the research that I did for my master's thesis. And yeah, I, I just saw it as an opportunity to continue this sort of curiosity to, to see what is, what is, yeah. how our world uh, yeah. works. And yeah, again, even at that time, I was aware of the, let's say, the downsides of doing a PhD. Yeah. I had friends yeah. of mine doing a PhD and they were happy most of the time, but they were also stressed very often and uh, struggling. And 
But on the other hand, uh, my friends that were not doing PhDs were also going through the same emotion with, with yeah. stress and, uh, and workload and uh, whatnot. So, yeah, for me, it was <clears throat> like a first, first job, um, actually quite a nice job opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. I had some experience in a university setting by working in the university museum. So I, I kind of like this environment. I like the people that offered the, the PhD project. Yeah. Do them for my master thesis. And um, I had a good feeling about this. So I thought, okay, let's let's go for that. And I, yeah. Yeah, again, I did not think very much far ahead. I was just thinking, yeah. okay, is this something I'd like to do? Is yeah. it a good opportunity? Yeah. yeah, it is. So let's let's go for this. Yeah. So sort of like listen to your gut and follow your curiosity. Yeah, I'd say that's that's it, and maybe that's also what um, what what inspired the other choices after that. Um, I, I don't believe that you can look that far ahead in in whatever you're doing. Yeah. But yeah. you can you can decide whether or not an, a next step is um, something that you that you like or not. Yeah. And if you like it, then uh, then yeah, why not why not try? Okay. Cool. Okay. So as a final question. Uh, for people that are interested in your, your fields, but may not be schooled in it, like me, what would be a good popular science book or podcast or movie or documentary to start with? Uh, so I would say, and I think this would, um, would appeal to basically anyone and it very close links to economics, but basically any field of science or any field of uh, even without science, I think it's interesting to have a look at it. So there's um, there's this website, and I can I can give you the link so you can put it under the, the podcast. Yeah. But it's the System Th Systems Thinker, and it's okay. a website that is devoted to to explaining systems thinking. Yeah. Um, and how basically to study. Is these connections between different components, whether it's society, whether it's nature, whether it's some artificial system that you program in a computer. Yeah. Any connection between components and the dynamic behavior you get from those, uh, those systems. Yeah. I think <clears throat> seeing the world through, uh, through the eyes of a systems thinker will yeah. really sort of broaden your view and help you interpret common events, like yeah. not seeing events as sort of um, incidents but seeing them as as part of a pattern that that reflects an underlying larger process of interacting component and and this website i, I have my students read it for the master's course so they understand what are systems what is system behavior yeah. and it's yeah. it's very approachable and, and many people will be able to to enjoy this and, and read it and and actually allow it to change their perception of reality so, That's excellent reading for the summer holiday. So I'd say have a look at that website. I will. And it's, yeah. um, it's, it's quite big and there's references to papers and to, uh, to underlying literature that is very, uh, very interesting in, in my view. Cool. And I'll make sure to post it in the description as well. All right. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. And um, yeah, so this is likely the last episode of this season of Campus Chats. But oh, no. I, I know. <laughs> I do have some people lined up um, to talk to them in August. So hopefully we'll get started again in the new academic year. Um, right. And until then, have a lovely summer holiday. Well, you too. Thank you very much for the interview. Yeah. Thank you for making time. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye.